Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation. Let us pray. This evening, God, again, we are in your presence by your strength and your power and your mercy. We are thankful, Lord, for a beautiful day, for a beautiful evening, God, and for the good weather and for the rain, Lord, and the snow that we have, that we shall have this week, God, because we need it. We're thankful, Lord, even for the inconveniences, God, because that water is important for the farmers and for our homes and for our livelihood. And we ask, God, that you would continue to be with us and bless us and bless the nation, Lord, not because she deserves the blessings, God, but because your church is in her midst, Lord. We pray that you would be good to the church and, of course, good to the nation insofar as you bring revival and reformation, repentance, Lord, upon the populace, upon our neighbors. Precious God and Savior, we pray for the efforts of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to bring about revival and reformation across the world through foreign missions, Lord, in the good sense of establishing churches, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, and be with the Pastors, Lord, be with the evangelists, be with their families, God, as they go to strange places and uh, meet strange and new things, that you would protect them, God, especially, Lord, from sicknesses and physical harm and spiritual difficulties, Lord, that can come about through these things. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the monies that we have that help them, God. We pray that we would have wisdom in dealing and establishing these mission works, Lord, in the long-term and the short-term ones that we have, the ones we've had for a very long time, God, and perhaps new fields that we would understand where we find ourselves, Lord, where we find our, the resources of our church in America, God, and the situation we find ourselves in as a nation, Lord, and how it affects the church and therefore could affect the monies that we have uh, in the church and thus the monies that we have for foreign missions. So may we prioritize in a proper manner, God, be with our missionaries, be with the committees, be with the presbyteries and other churches, Lord, that are involved in such works as can, God, as we have ourselves. Uh, in Haiti, and in Europe, and in Africa, God, be with those men, be with their families, God. Give them a harvest, Lord. Give them encouragement. May they not be discouraged. May they persevere, Lord. And again, if need be, may we be wise and bold enough to do the right thing sometimes, and we may have to close a mission field or move a mission field or make other hard decisions, Lord, but decisions that must be made. We pray for our families, God, that you would be with them, that they would be strong in the Lord, that you would be with the fathers and the husbands, God, that they would do their duty and love their family and love their wives. We ask, Lord, for the children to uh, submit to their parents and learn from their parents, God, and certainly for we who have left the house to honor our parents, Lord, and think about how we can uh, prepare our finances and our life to take care of them in their old age as they took care of us in our young age. And so, Lord, we pray also for the wives to stand firm in their calling to submit to their husbands and the mothers, Lord, to, to instruct their children and warn them and also encourage them, God. Be with our families and watch over them, we pray. And we thank the Lord that we have families near each other, that we would take care of our families, not just what we call the um, nuclear family, God, but uh, our parents, our grandparents, our uncles, and others that are near us, Lord, that uh, we have a, a natural affinity towards them, Lord, this uh, natural love and affection as we read about the New Testament uh, of those who do not have that and uh, fight against that, Lord, and have an unnatural hatred towards those who are of their kin. Precious Lord and Savior, help us to maintain such love for our family. And we pray, God, for our healthy families and for all of us, Lord, to support our families and support the singles and support one another, God, in the church of Jesus Christ. We pray for our travel, not only for my family, for others, Lord, as the Restrictions are lifted as uh, summer is coming and late spring, Lord, and people are becoming uh, more anxious to get out, God. Watch over our 
members here, Lord, as we travel to and fro in various places, God. Of course, again, especially for work and around the Denver metro area, Lord, where we have, it seems, more dangerous drivers at times. Our Lord and Savior, uh, we ask that you would be with our leaders. You raise up godly leaders locally, uh, both uh, judges and magistrates, Lord, uh, sheriffs and the like, uh, that they would be uh, men and women of conviction, do the right thing and pass the right law, Lord. Certainly wish they were Christians, God. But even if they're not Christians, Lord, may they do the right thing. And may you hold back the wicked leaders and the wicked laws that we have around us, God, that they would not be enforced, that they would be forgotten. Help, we pray, God, that you would be with your people, wherever they may be, across Denver here in Colorado and the nation, Lord, to protect them, watch over them, Lord, and give them a good and faithful magistrate. In your name alone we pray. Oh, well, yeah. That, thank you. I need bigger glasses if I want the peripheral vision. Okay. We are in Psalm 21. Still don't know what I'm going to do with Psalm 119, but I'll work on it. Psalm 21. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies, and your right hand shall find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. The fire shall devour them. Your offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which are not able to perform. Therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows and your on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let us pray. Now, with this psalm, God, we praise your name. We stand in awe of this picture, Lord, a picture of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings par excellence. And so, Lord, may we stand and praise you as the psalmist does here, and at the end says it very clearly. We will sing and praise your power. It is a psalm of power. The king has joy in your strength, and we ought to follow that example, have joy in your strength and your power, exercise for the redemption of our souls. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Psalm 21 is an interesting psalm. It is interesting in its subject matter. It is interesting in its object. This subject matter is about the praise to God for his might and power, as I mentioned in the prayer at the beginning and at the end. Mercy is mentioned, of course, but the theme is power, and we see that power exercised in praise and laudance, illustrated in particular in the middle to the end part there that borders on an imprecation or a prayer of judgment. Of course, it's not a prayer of judgment as such, but a description of the judgment of God, but the description is given in a positive manner. It's assumed, and he believes it is good that God judges his enemies. And lastly, the psalm is interesting because it is written to and about a king. Who is this king? Well, I think we know already. 
who the ultimate reference point is of this king. The first point, the king's joy in the Lord's strength, verses 1 through 6. Who is this king? Well, first of all, the one who wrote it would be David. He is a king, and many commentators believe he's writing about himself. In the third person, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. But we also know, brothers and sisters, and recall that the Old Testament kingship was a type of the kingship of Christ, Messiah. Established to teach them what it means that God will save them by his power and his might. His type is officially established as a symbol to point to Jesus as the Messiah and as their king and what he shall do to save his people from their sins and from their enemies. Represents the rule of Christ. So the king shall have joy in your strength and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice? Reading it from that perspective, it exalts and brings us up on high. See Jesus Christ as our king, as our Lord, and as our master. How he has joy in the strength of God Almighty. Remember, Jesus is both God and man. And as man, he is uh, finite. The human nature is finite. The king aspect of the redemption, of course, is emphasized in the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, we read, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, and who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That tells you already that this covenant is part of the covenant of grace. It is given to emphasize the kingship and the lordship and the power and the might of our Savior and our Lord in giving this covenant to David. The covenant says it's forever. Your kingdom shall be established forever. And we know what? Jesus took the body and soul of a man. It came from the line of David. He is the lion of Judah. Just like it says in 2 Samuel 7, and as we see illustrated here in Psalm 21. Jesus is literally, as the man, king. He's of the kingly line of Judah. He has a right to the throne. But, of course, his throne is the throne of heaven and of earth. Joy and strength. The kings of the Old Testament were to rely upon God. The king shall have joy in your strength. All the kings should have joy in the strength of God. That is, they rely upon him. They trust in him and therefore are joyous because God exercises his power for the good of his people. That's the point. Not just, well, God's really strong, isn't that neat? Look what he's exercised, what he's done. That's what we see in a large section here of Psalm 21, especially the good of the Old Testament church. Godly magistrates today, of course, should rejoice in God's power if we had more godly Christian leaders. But God has preserved his church and his people in America, in various parts of America. <clears throat> And note here, of course, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. Lord is what? It's all caps. And that's the translator is telling us that that's that special word that we don't really know how it's pronounced, but Yahweh, covenant-keeping God. And in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. And so there's this parallelism, is, again, in the psalm here as elsewhere. He has joy in the, self, in the strength. Strength for what? To what end? Why the power? Why the might? For their salvation, for their deliverance. Military victories, of course. The kings were real kings back then. David was a real king. He had a real sword, and he really slaughtered people. Saul had his thousands, but David had his ten thousands. 
Now, we don't have such promises today where we can rejoice before God that he has promised our enemies shall flee before us. But, of course, if we have a real battle and it's protecting God's people, we should rejoice in any victory that we have. But ultimately, these are types of spiritual victories, the saving of our soul, the saving of the church, and how God uses Jesus as our king to deliver us. Salvation and deliverance in the Old Testament was, of course, not only physical and material, but spiritual. It's echoed and shown in the work and the line of the priest. That's true, but also the king. This is important because many people think about the priest, think about the love aspect, and not as much about the power aspect of what's required to redeem God's people. There in the New Testament and it's there in the Old Testament. The blessing upon the king, verses 2 through 6, you have given him, that is the king's heart's desire, have not withheld the request of his lips, for you have met him with the blessings of goodness and set the crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. And there we have it again, more evidence in the text, as we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, that this isn't just about kings of the Old Testament, but Jesus Christ, because it's forever and ever. Who? What king of Israel lived forever and ever? Jesus. He lives forever and ever. Again, this this psalm lifts us up into the heavenlies and shows us that it's ultimately about Jesus Christ, our King. That's what we mean when we say Lord and Master. He's the one who's in charge. He directs and guides our lives, but he also protects us and exercises his power for us. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld uh, the request of his lips. Of course, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Everything he had was sinless and perfect. And his heart's desire was the Father's heart's desire to a T. And therefore, nothing was ever withheld from the Son. David and the kings, of course, to the extent that their hearts desired God's will, God answered them. Other times he delayed the answer. They were but fallen kings. Length of days, forever and ever. No king, of course, lived forever, but King Jesus Our King Jesus is glorious because of what he did for us. His glory is great in your salvation. That is, verse 5, the salvation from God, the salvation that Jesus himself participates in and had a hand in, an important hand in. You have made him most blessed forever. He is the most blessed King, Lord, and Master that we would gladly praise. Verse 6 there, you have made him exceedingly uh, glad with your presence. You have made him the most blessed forever. Again, most blessed, well, that would be Jesus. David was blessed, but not most blessed. David had a fair amount of long life, but not forever and ever. They are but shadows of the substance that is Jesus Christ. And so when we go through uh, Samuel and Chronicles, and we see the lives of the kings, in the case of David in particular, uh, we can see a number of times where his office clearly shows the work of Jesus and what he does to redeem his people, to protect his people, to shepherd his people. Shepherding in the Old Testament has kingly overtones. We often think of it as priestly overtones. Well, you've got to protect your little sheepy, and we love the sheep. No, it's a guarding aspect. It's the power aspect and the protection aspect, the kingly aspect. King's trust, verse uh, the second point, the king's trust in the Lord's strength. He has joy in the Lord's strength. Kings and magistrates and leaders should have joy and happiness that God is in control, that God is working through them and in them for victory and for power to protect God's people. The kings of the Old Testament protected God's people. 
literally with a sword. And you might have to do that today. What's kind of odd, perhaps in the American context, we don't think of it that way. Uh, but if we were in worse times, if we were, I don't know, in the Middle East, you would be glad and happy to have a church member who was a magistrate, a leader, and he had a gun, and he had a little army, and he protected the church from, I don't know, Muslims, pirates. Right? They had pirates. What was that, Sudan and all that, down around Africa, on the Horn of Africa, and they would, you know, kidnap boats and yachts, and it's what you want. The spirituality of the church is fine. It's spiritual. That is, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not an expert on politics and whatnot. That's not my calling. But the church is still physical. We still have physical needs. We have, we have a diaconate, don't we? And if we happen to have a magistrate who has a sword who's going to protect us, great. <laughs> Do it. And so that's what's happening in the Old Testament. It may happen again, and it has happened historically uh, through time. And this is a good thing. It's a good way, I think, and a proper way to think about these matters. So here, the second point, the king's trust in the Lord's strength, verses 7 through 12. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now, Jesus, of course, trusted God. It wasn't a saving trust in the sense that he needed, because, you know, he's a fallen being or something. No, that's what we are. That's the kind of trust we need. The salvific faith. It was the salvific for Christ, the man, but it was a real faith and trust in his Father, as we see over and over again in the New Testament. Trust, again, as a reminder, is reality in the Old Testament. The godly did not trust in themselves. The the godly Jews, the pious Jews, trusted in God and his promises for them, and his might and his power exercised for them. They had faith. They were saved. This is yet another psalm that reminds us of that fact. The godly kings and godly magistrates that trust in God are wonderful things to have for the church. The king trusts in the Lord. The kings ought to trust in the Lord. David trusted in the Lord. He had many battles that are proof of that. Right? You go through Hebrews, and it gives a list of the wonderful acts of faith. And part of the acts of faith are what? Driving out the aliens. Fighting. Defending the church. That's what David did. Those were acts of faith. Because faith says, I trust God. When God tells me to do something, I want to do it. I may not do it perfectly. I may stumble, but I want to do it, and I'm going to do what I can. And David did, and David fought. Those were acts of faith. He had a kingly rule under God. But, of course, as we know, not all the time did he have a strong faith. He failed. For the king trusts in the Lord. Except David didn't always trust him. So this points again to Jesus, who never failed. Jesus and his rule as our king has never failed to exercise his power for godliness, not for wickedness like David did. Christ perfectly obeyed the Father. Christ never failed. Christ is all-powerful as a king and therefore trustworthy because he has never failed and never had a moral failing and has that power. We have this old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's shorthand, I know. It's, it's, a not, it's not technically correct. God has absolute power. He's not corrupt. What you're using with the power, it's because humans are already fallen. When you give them power, more temptation unto wickedness and sin, but not always. Again, you want a cop with a gun, preferably a Christian, to have the power of a gun to protect you and your family when it comes down to the wire. So the power of God given to us through providence, for example, ought to be exercised aright. And always, the king, the magistrate, the leader should trust in God 
no matter what, and use that power for his glory. And the mercy here, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. David certainly was not moved. And he knew it wasn't because he's somehow special and better than all the other Christians, but rather God and his mercy gave him a double dosage of his spirit and power, and so he was able to fight the enemies of God in the Old Testament and to rule overall in a good manner. He trusted in God's mercy. If you want deliverance from a powerful enemy who lays waste to your land and you can do nothing but flee before his might, the mercy you want from the deliverer is a mercy of power as well. And so the theme of power and mercy are here in the psalm, not in contradistinction from each other, that is contrasted, but sweetly, harmoniously put together. For the king trusts in the Lord. The king trusts in the Lord through his mercy and the Most High, he shall not be moved. The idea of move there, of course, in the context of King David fighting the enemies, is that he stands firm and does not fall back. God's mercy strengthens him, as we saw last week, where God, through providence, Zechariah, delivers his people through his people. He gives them the power and the might to fight the enemies. So David here, entrusting the king, entrusting the Lord, And his mercy, mercy doesn't always mean, in the Old Testament context, like here, saving of the soul, but also deliverance and victory in the here and now at times. And we have that at times, right? God gave the coppices a house. God has given us jobs. God has used the means of providence so that we can be victorious that way for good things. But ultimately, of course, for our soul and fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, he has given us power. Sanctification, through sanctification, power through his word, power of the Holy Spirit, that we, brothers and sisters, may trust in his mercy and therefore trust in his power, that we shall not be moved when we face the torrent temptations of this world. Not just the king, but all of us should have the example of King David and all the godly kings, and of course, Jesus Christ. And through the mercy of the Lord, we have power, is the implication here, that we shall not be moved. There's an image that a pastor gave me when we were talking last week. He was asking some questions. And he said, you know, I tell in my congregation, look, you know, the flood seasons come down south, and that torrential rain just washes everything away. Houses are moving down, right, floating like this. But once in a while, what do you see? You see these old trees with deep roots not moving. And I thought that was a powerful picture of God working through his church and God working through each of us. That's our call, not to move. And we can because we trust in our Lord who is our king and our master. We have joy in his strength and his power, and we trust in his power and in his mercy. Judgment, verse 8. Speaking of the Lord, your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Here we have a picture of judgment. Strong judgment. Powerful judgment. The king trusts in the Lord and the mercy of the Most High. and continues on to explain part of what that trust entails. That is, he trusts God to deliver his people and delivers his people with the power of judgment. Judgment. First note. God's mercy is not universal. <laughs> Again, that goes against the spirit of the age where we're told God loves everyone, has a wonderful plan for their life. You're an enemy of God. You better be afraid. Very afraid. 
God will judge. The other note here is trust in God's deliverance is to accept God's judgment. David is not bemoaning that God is judging his enemies, but describing what it means that he is standing firm and not moved where everyone else is being moved. They're being moved by judgment. And the slate is being wiped clean and they're falling off of it. Not David, because God's mercy is upon David. God's mercy is particular. God's mercy is only for some and not all. And therefore the judgment is for all the others who are not under God's mercy. Those enemies we read here is not how some people may get the impression as though uh, God just is angry because he just has this problem being angry all the time. No, people hate God. The nice neighbor with a nice smile on his face who helps you put up your fence perhaps, take care of your dogs or your gerbils, Right? You're like, this is a nice guy. He's not a Christian. He hates God by definition. You must believe that. Oh, we can't read the Psalms. I'm going through the Psalms. I'm going to go through even stronger imprecatory Psalms. They're there. Part of the Word of God. We have to have the right perspective. He explains in verse 11 part of what's going on here. For they intend evil against you. Right? They intend evil. God tells them, Submit to him and follow him, and they say no. What are they planning but evil? And of course, we hear evil today. It's something like, uh, you know, you're conservative, (laughs) therefore you're Hitler. I mean, you know, something like that. That's. But in the Bible, just evil is not following God. You don't have to be a Hitler, or I like to say Stalin. No, people always like to pick on Hitler. Well, Stalin was worse, and so was. Other people as well. Evil, of course, is just simply against God. I said earlier, a few minutes ago, and I'm going to highlight here, judgment as deliverance. The king, you shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. That's the opening sentence, and thus the theme, that God's power has given him deliverance. He's not moved, verse 7. And here we see judgment, and I'm, I'm going to tell you that judgment is related to deliverance. We don't think of it that way, but it makes sense. Rescuing you from the devil, from his kingdom, from sin, is to bring judgment upon the devil, upon the kingdom of evil, and upon sin, and give you deliverance. The two go hand in hand. Which is to say, you cannot have your salvation the mercy of God by his power and might without God's judgment. And we often think, of course, the judgment upon Christ in our stead. We should have that judgment. Christ got it instead. But there's another judgment. This is the judgment here, that he judges the enemies who are trying to tear us down and take us apart. That's part of our deliverance, brothers and sisters. Again, I argue it's not a happy thought because it's saying, again, it's a negative thing. Judgment. Judgment is there, and it's part and parcel of us being delivered from the devil. He's being judged from the kingdom of Satan. That kingdom has been judged, and if people stay in that kingdom, they too are being judged. They are enemies of God, and they are being judged. The devil's kingdom, in other words, is not being saved, not being delivered. It is destroyed that it may no longer harry and harass Christians. That's the goal of God we would have final rest and peace from the devil coming after us in his kingdom. The description of judgment is interesting. 
again, you know, often the language here in Psalms is very metaphorical, uh, not in the sense of there's no substance behind it. It deals with real judgment, deals with real people and real consequences of heaven and hell. Uh, but the particular language uh, doesn't always point to a particular aspect in the sense of uh, what it exactly looks like. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. I don't think any of us believes that God's going to literally have an oven in the end times, right? But it's like or as an oven. So, verse 8. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. They cannot hide from God. Nobody can flee. No rebel will escape. That's the point. That's how we would say it today. They say it more flyerly, but it's still just as clear and more impactful, in fact. You will find all your enemies, and your right hand will find those who hate you. Reminding you again who the enemies of God are. They are the ones who hate him, period. Verse 9. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. No sin is missed. No aspect of what is required for judgment is missed. That is, all the sins will be thoroughly judged. Not a sin will be missed in that judgment. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, the descendants from among the sons of men. Again, people read that and they think, what a terrible God, that must be the God of the Old Testament. We have the God of the New Testament. And you end up with all kinds of messed up problems when you take that approach to the Bible. As you can probably just imagine already. Wow. What are you going to do if this is a different God? Wow, that's amazing. What's going on in the Old Testament is a different God. It's not a different God. It's the same God. It's the same holy God. But if we remember, you don't say everything in any given text. It's human language. It's not how it works. What he's speaking of here is offspring who carry on the hatred of their fathers. Ezekiel 18, as you recall, is that great passage that we're forgetting about. Uh, more and more, I fear, in churches, there was a book that came out recently arguing from uh, at least one pastor may be ruling out, I don't know who the other author is, in the PCA for reparations. But Ezekiel 18 says, you know, this generation has given this lie, as I give a summary here, that the teeth of the children shall be set on edge when the fathers eat the grapes. That is, what the parents do affects what the children do. They're wicked parents, so it's the kids are going to find fault at it. And God says, that is not true says the Lord, if that son or that daughter repents, follows me, and does good works, he's not going to suffer the consequences of the sins of the parents. If they don't repent, they will suffer the consequences. Every man himself shall stand before God naked. That's the point of Ezekiel 18. And he tells the Jews, you miss the point. Quite fascinating how applicable it is. You miss the point. And so, here, I would argue, he's not saying, just by virtue of being born in the sense of, there's a better way of saying it, everyone's born in sin. (laughs) So unless God saves them, their offsprings will be devoured, because they hate God too. But if they're called by him, they will break the line of curses, and they will be saved. He's not saying, you cannot be saved, period. Sorry, if your parents were sinners, you're never going to be saved, God's going to send you to hell. That's not the point here. It's those who hate me and carry on the hate, as we see in Ezekiel 18. So sin is generational insofar as we inherit original sin. And in that sense, we should have reparations for all kinds of stuff all the time, right? Because everything we do, just being born, is just perpetuating sin. We're all raised in sin and carry on sin from that perspective, which is not a very helpful perspective. 
So, no wicked descendant will escape. They think they can get away from God. The picture here is of the thoroughness of God's judgment from all those who hate him, who plot, turn their back from him. God will do it, because God has the power. The reasons for the judgments, as already mentioned, they're unrepentant. Verse 11, for they intended evil against you. Or verse 8, uh, I will find those who hate you. Not, I will find those who second-guessed and repented. None of that. This is an act of perpetual hate against God. And God will judge them. They do not repent. So, here, therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string towards your faces. And thus, the Lord will, again, bring judgment swiftly and powerfully. But, when we read here in verse 11... For they intended evil against you, and they devised a plot which they are not able to perform. If people devise a plot against you, and you're innocent, right? Not a plot of a good guy versus a bad guy, but a bad guy versus a good guy. It's like in the movies. That's bad. If they devise a plot and have evil intent against a king or a magistrate or a sheriff, that's worse, isn't it? It's a public office. And we know that intuitively again. And it's that much worse when it's a plot against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why we have such a text as this. Not like, oh, they hate you as a Christian, or they hate you as a pastor. They hate the Lord behind us. Jesus says that. And that's why judgment is coming for them unless they repent. And that's the message the world needs to hear. The third point, the King's praise in the Lord's strength. Praises he has joy in the strength of the Lord and the might of his power. And he trusts in the Lord's strength, and now he praises the Lord's strength. Verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We shall sing and praise your power. Exalt God. Why? Because his strength and power and his might is directed towards your salvation, directed uh, towards mercy that you may stand firm in the torrent of wickedness around us and strength and power directed in judgment against the enemies of God. Again, it's not be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength and power, and we sing praises for your power because we like power, but the power exercised in the concrete, in history, in the here and now, brothers and sisters, for your good. We'll see next week that good, of course, is not just the soul, although that's very important, but also your body. That's why you have the comfort here. So we have access to nice filters, right? Uh, air filtration here, building in a car. That's God's power for your good. To sing praises before God of his might and power. Now, if you're like me and you grew up uh, somewhat in a Christian household or a little bit of Christian household, I'm not sure, however, you came about Christian music, a lot of Christian music, I have not looked this up, but it's certainly been my experience, a lot of songs about God's love, mercy, compassion, long-suffering, patience, peace, Understanding, compassion, what other words do I need, right? How many songs are there about his power, his might, his omnipotence? Maybe you guys don't listen to Christian music anymore, but we need more of that. The psalmist has it. I know some in my head right now, but most of them aren't about that. And yet here we have an entire psalm praising the Lord, having joy in that God is all-powerful. He does his, own, his holy will. And I thank the Lord for that. And that's an exciting truth because I tell you, you look around the world and you see the power of the enemy and you wonder what's going on and you remember his power 
is actually under God's thumb. He can go no further than what God allows him. Much of the Old Testament is a display of God's power. That's obvious. And if we pay attention, we'll see much of the New Testament is a display of God's power too. We see that in Acts. I finished Acts and all the miracles and the conversions. Multitudes were converted. That's the power of God exercised for the salvation of the soul. En masse. And we praise God for that. That's a wonderful thing to sing God about. Sing to him about his power, his might, his strength, exercised for us in providence, special providence, and in the saving of our soul and the continuing preservation of our soul to this day. Let us rejoice, brothers and sisters, in God's strength. Let us have joy as the king has joy here, as Christ had joy. His power that saves us, Christ our king, conquered sin and death. He redeemed us from Satan's kingdom, and he adopted us into his family. His power preserves our soul. His power that preserves our prosperity of our soul and of our body. Pray for church leaders. That's the closest parallel here to the king. To rejoice and trust and praise the Lord for his almighty power and to teach others to rejoice in the trust and the praise the almighty power of God. Pray for the godly magistrates of this land. There are some out there that they would rejoice in the strength of our Lord and Savior, that they would trust in his power and his might, and that they would praise him, yes, publicly, for his strength, for his omnipotence, and for his power directed towards his people. Let us pray. Lord and Savior God Almighty, we use the word almighty because it means you have all might and power, and all the power that we have is derived from you and limited by you because we can never be as powerful as you. We thank you, Lord, that your power is not abstract, but exercised in the here and now uh, with this pulpit before me, with the shoes on my feet, God, and the air that we breathe here, exercising the power, Lord, that we see you exercise it for us. We thank you for that fact, Lord. We praise you for the reality that you are our Lord, you are our master, and you are our almighty King. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all.